Good morning, family. Good morning. Morning. Sorry, that's really loud with this thing. It's like, wow, thank you. I am both honored and terrified to have the privilege of sharing God's message with you this week. Mike said earlier, I've never preached at this church before. I never preached before. <laughs> so I, I have taught, so we have some foundation here, but I am honored because there is no other word that can possibly apply to having the opportunity of illuminating God's word. I'm terrified because I know what the Bible says about one who improperly handles and teaches the word of truth. Even so, I firmly believe that this is the proper attitude for every teacher of the Bible, and it is in this manner, terrified, that I stand before you today. As Mike mentioned last week, and actually just now, and in case you, the beard fooled you, I'm not him. Neither am I Brian, Greg, or Blake. For I am respectively too fat, too short, and far too dorky. In the same sense, I, of course, will not approach this sermon in the same manner as any of them would. Hopefully, you will find that variety refreshing. If not, well, I'm only here for one week. So you can look forward to Brian's preaching next Sunday. I mention this specifically for any visitors who are with us today. If I fail the, if I fail the Lord this morning and stand too much in the way of his message so that it does not reach you, uh, please don't let that discourage you from returning. I have already noted that I am particularly fearful of being an improper teacher of God's word, but let me briefly latch onto that word, uh, teacher. I believe myself to be just that, a teacher, and not necessarily a pastor or a preacher. As such, you may find my approach um, a tad more pedagogic and likely less eloquent than you're used to. Even so, I pray that I am able to illuminate the topic today and, bring, and, and help build up for you a sense of the anticipation for the advent of Christ. And with those cautions and asides out of the way, let's begin. As noted last week and already this morning, our theme this Advent is anticipating the coming Christ in types and shadows through redemptive history in the Old Testament. I recognize this statement is packed with meaning, some of which may be a bit confusing. In preparing for this lesson, I attempted to parse that out and only find the most significant words in the statement. Uh, for any grammar uh, nerds out there, in doing so, I was left with only articles, conjunctions, and prepositions um, as words of what I considered less importance. And even that designation might be somewhat suspect. So if you don't mind bearing with me, and before we begin in on Abraham, the subject of our lesson today, let's take a moment to parse through our theme together word by word. So first, anticipating coming in Christ. Anticipating, excitedly looking forward to something, particularly something expected or promised. It is what we feel for Christmas, what children especially feel for presents, right? Or we all do, let's be honest. Coming, in this context, an indication of what has been and is being promised. Christ has already come, and Christ will come again, but has not yet. Notice those words, already, not yet. Finally, Christ, the anointed one, prophesied and promised to a people in peril, not just Jesus' name, but his title. This first part, anticipating the coming Christ, is exactly what the season of Advent is about. Advent literally means coming. So whose coming do we anticipate in the season of Advent? Obviously, we anticipate the coming Christ, the fulfillment of the very prophecy given, as we saw last week, almost as soon as Adam fell. Although I will, not, I will now breeze through this first part in order to spend some time examining the second, I should make it clear to you that this is a choice. I'm afraid the second part of this theme is likely the more obtuse one, 
But even so, there was no doubt that we could spend a whole sermon series on these three words alone, anticipating, coming, and Christ. So how about the second part? Let's break it down. Let's break it down. In types and shadows, through redemptive history and the Old Testament, I mentioned the dork thing earlier, that'll come out. I can't help it. I try to contain it, but it oozes out. Okay. First, the term types and shadows. And in case it is in any way unclear, we will treat these words types and shadow mostly as synonyms uh, who find their opposites in the terms antitype and substance. Type, antitype, shadow, and substance. Last week, Blake did an excellent job describing these terms, so much so that I don't think he'll mind if I quote exactly what he says. Quoting Blake, quote. Perhaps mo most, simply, uh, most simple types are models where antitypes are the completed realities, the real deal. Types are real historical things, things that actually happen, but they point towards something better to come, which would be the antitypes. They are both similarities and dissimilarities between types and antitypes, and we can use the former to better, better understand the latter, and the latter to better understand the former. There's a circular nature. So, finishing my quote, let me reemphasize a part of that definition that Blake gave us last week. Types are real historical things. Types describe events that happened. They are not allegories, but realities. In history, designed to point us, and indeed those who live them, forward toward a second, greater fulfillment. Sometimes these shadows are failures, such as Adam's fall, which put within us a desire for something greater, for a better Adam. Last week, we looked at one scripture in particular as our guide on types and shadows, Colossians 2.17. Let's look at it again. Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There it is, the very relationship we are looking for, a shadow of things to come of which the substance is Christ. And, unless we take this verse out of context, it should be noted that Paul is, correct, uh, is correcting a false teaching that these new Gentile Christians could somehow be disqualified by not following certain Old Testament practices. Paul shows them that these old, these old practices contained in the Jewish ceremonial law were shadows that uh, pointed to the true and better, a greater reality, to a greater fulfillment in Christ. Stepping forward a bit in the second part of our theme, how about the term redemptive history? Or maybe we should drop the word redemptive and just call it history, or even his story, capital H-I-S. I can write it, but you have to say it, right? with a capital his. It is a fundamental truth of scripture that every event in history is part of a great and expected narrative called by some a meta-narrative, kind of a proper term there, a meta-narrative of God's plan for redemption, a plan that began before Adam fell. What more is there to say on this point except that we can look for the types and shadows only because we know that history is no accident but part of a greater plan. As an aside, it is perhaps not unusual that we find ourselves in an age where the primary worldview uh, called postmodernism is precisely described by its very adherents as incredulity toward meta-narratives. In other words, the philosophy of our time is that there is no grand plan or path for history, and any attempt to describe such is merely a power play, an attempt to coerce others. Some years ago, my wife coined an even better term for the time we live in, a post-truth society. Unsurprisingly, in recent years, this term has been simultaneously discovered by many others and has become a common description of the world we live in. 
If you ever needed proof that our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, were active, then look no further than this philosophy. So how about the final term in our theme, Old Testament? It is easy to breeze by this with the simple term um, I've already provided, the part of the story that leads up to the Christ's first advent. While this is a true statement, it is only a part. A testament is more than just a story, it is also an inheritance plan, as, a, as in a last will and testament. Just as Christ's death for us inaugurated a new testament and the church age that we live in today, if we could, it could be said that Adam's death in the, and the fall, leading to a millennia of bloody animal sacrifices pointing toward Christ, is the testament that came before. So taken together, our Advent theme is simply about seeing the truth with a capital T, that all of history points toward Christ, and that none of it has happened by chance. We see this truth today by examining the story of Abraham. So first, background on Abraham. How many of you grew up singing the song, Father Abraham? Raise your hand. Okay, you can't take them down now. You have to keep them up. Sing it with me. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, right? Okay, you can stop now. I'm going to get the whole thing here. But at this point in the song, we would mention an appendage or, uh, to wave, subsequently moving from one to another until all of our, uh, we're nodding our heads, spinning around, and waving our arms and legs in tandem. It's the coordination that children have, I tell you. Funny thing, but I never understood the song as a kid, and it really bothered me. Growing up in the church, I knew who Abraham was, and I knew we were not related. He was the father of the Hebrew people, but I was not Jewish. Neither, as far as I knew, were any of the other kids in my church. Why were we singing a song about being sons of Abraham? Well, today, we get to explore that question. And maybe, when we are done, I will have convinced the child in me, and maybe you as well, that we really are sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, as much as I want to dive right into the types and themes evident in Abraham's life, I don't want to make the assumption we all know who Abraham was. To be honest, in planning for this lesson, I rediscovered how much of Abraham's life I had forgotten. For example, do you know he was remarried after Sarah died? And in fact had six more children, but none of which were children of the promise. So, just fun facts, right? So, who was this man Abraham? The beginning of what we know about Abraham comes from the end of Genesis 11, in verses 27 through 32, where he is introduced to us as a Gentile and likely idol-worshiping, 17 times great grandson of Adam, I counted. Let's look at this passage. Genesis 11, 27 through 32. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Names, right? Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, his son of Her the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, the son of Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So wait, some of you are thinking this already. I said idol worshiping. Where did I get that? Because so far, where does it say? He was idol worshiping, right? 
Although I generally hate jumping around in scripture, although I'll do some a bit today, I'm afraid. Um, quickly turn with me to Joshua 24, 2, and we can see it for ourselves. Joshua 24, 2, and Joshua said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Okay, so depending on how you read that passage, Joshua, speaking as a prophet of God, indicates that Abraham's father, Terah, and likely Abraham himself, were not followers of God, not at first. But just like you and me, God was not content to let this be the case. Let's move forward a little more into our introduction to Abram, or Abraham. Notice the name difference. We'll get to that later. Follow along with me as we continue in our reading of Genesis 12, 1 through 9. So next chapter. Then the Lord said to Abram, Go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country, to the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So twice there we see something. He built an altar to the Lord. There's so much to parse through in this passage, but I'm going to try and keep us on topic of who Abraham was, because we still have a lot of ground to cover, and we have not even begun to look at how the events of Abraham's life are tied to the coming Christ. We've already established that it is very likely that Abraham was not initially a follower of God. In this passage, though, we see God approach him. Let me repeat that again. God, the Lord, the creator of the universe of heaven and earth, uh, does not wait for Abraham to come to him. God initiates, and by the end of this passage, we see that not only has Abram obeyed the Lord, he is worshiping him. Certainly, those of us who are believers can see in our own relationship with Christ the same pattern. Is this a type or shadow of the relationship with God that we have uh, today, thanks to our sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus? To some extent, it may be, but in my fallible opinion, it is even more a reflection of God's nature. It is proof that God does not change. Today, like then, it is he who initiates. What else do we see in this passage? Well, we see a number of promises of land and of descendants, and we will come back to those. But first, we have to acknowledge the very significant promise made at the end of 12.3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Without question, in this promise, we see a prophecy of the coming of Jesus to bless the whole world. Perhaps, I should say, with a nod back to the promise we looked at last week, the one that, would come, that one would come who would crush the serpent's head, that in this we see another prophecy of the coming Christ. So, what have we learned about Abraham at this point? In the beginning, he is a pagan chosen by God. If we continue to follow his life, a narrative of which is conveyed from where we started in Genesis 11 and finishes uh, with his death and burial in Genesis 25, we will see a life marked by both failure and faith. 
Again, we could spend years examining each detail of Abraham's life, and we will soon look at some of them. But how about a very, very quick survey of the story after this? We've already read an introduction to the persons of Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai at this point, his barren wife. How sad, by the way, at this point, that as she's introduced, she's mentioned as being barren. Just, we'll come back to that. Um, okay. And the promise is the land and the sins that God makes to them. After this introduction, we see that Abram immediately obeys the Lord, immediately. As he is directed, he travels to the land of the Canaanites, where God again renews the promise that he will have descendants who will inherit the, this promised land. In this land, he becomes a wanderer, but a well-regarded, wealthy, and respected one. At different points in the journey of Abram's life, we see him act as a, a dishonest coward, such as when, fearing for his life, he twice pretends that Sarai is his sister and not his wife. We also see him act with great courage, such as when he raises an army to rescue his nephew Lot. We see him act faithlessly and foolishly when he takes his wife's handmaiden as a concubine in an attempt to make God's promised child happen instead of waiting on God's timing. But we also see him act with great wisdom and faith when he is willing to give up that very promised child when tested by God. More than anything, in moment after moment, we see that his regular response to God is worship expressed through faith and obedience. So great is God's work and the part that Abraham played in his, capital H-I-S, story, that this story of faith features prominently in Hebrews 11. Let's look at this. Turn, if you will, to the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Many of you will be familiar with this passage, but if you are not, it is called by many the, the Faith Hall of Fame. Now, before we look here, just find the place and stay for a moment. Let's do a quick review, followed by a final caution. First, a review. Hopefully at this point, we understand our Advent theme, and we also have a good idea of who Abraham is. With that necessary foundation in place, it's time to ask the most important question for the day. How does the Bible show us shadows of the coming Christ in the life of Abraham? Now, this question, very critical for today, leads to a very brief but critical aside and a caution. When we look for types in Scripture, we must always avoid trying to read into Scripture what is not there. And history is rife with examples of exegetes or interpreters of Scripture who fail in this regard. Even some great men fall in this way. This is especially true when it comes to examining types in Scripture, as it can be very easy to get carried away. Finding symbols and meanings in places that are not there. Looking for deeper meanings and interpretations that no one has ever seen before. Let me be blunt. If it is in Scripture... It has been seen before. We, follow in, we believe in the perspicuity or understandability of Scripture. And so we believe that the meaning of Scripture is plain. So the question is, if types are historical events that have more complete analogs in antitypes, a concept that already seems a little unclear, how are we supposed to know, absolutely know, that an event described in the Old Testament is truly a shadow cast by the coming of Christ? Well, as with all Scripture, cautiously, and with the belief that it should either A, be clear and plain, or B, be said explicitly. Since the absolute best way to interpret Scripture is to use Scripture to do so, I am very pleased to inform you that the types that we will be examining in Abraham's life are both of the above. They're not only clear and plain, um, but given to us explicitly and providentially by the writer of Hebrews, as he writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In the Hebrews 11 passage we are about to examine, I contend that the writer points us to three very clear shadows of Christ in the life of Abraham. And these are only, um, 
Are these only circumstances in Abraham's life that point to the coming Christ? Certainly not. Personally, I believe there are many more. But since I can honestly think of no greater authority on the topic than the scripture itself, let's look at these three in particular. Certainly, there should be no question as to the veracity of these events and persons as forerunners of Christ. Now, caution aside, please follow along with me as we read Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 19, and see if you can detect these three shadows of Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that, was foundations, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Continuing in verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So did you catch them? I contend that the writer of Hebrews lays out for us the following three types of Christ in this passage. The promised land, the promised nation, and the obedient sacrifice. Let's take them in turn. The promised land. Um, let's, break, let's step back and break down the beginning part of Hebrews 11, 9 through 10 one more time. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Look at the contrast here between tents, the truly temporary tenements that Abraham and his son and his grandson would reside in, and a city with permanent foundations, designed and built by God. Did they come to this land, the land they were promised, hoping to only be wanderers and sojourners there? I don't think so. Let's jump forward a little and see more in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They understood the promise perfectly, but they also trusted God as only those who are called to and given their faith by God can. Look at what this passage says about that faith. It caused them to already see this land, the land that they were wandering in, the land still filled with Canaanites, as their homeland. Forget Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of Abram's birth, they trusted God enough to spend their lives in the land, and they already saw as theirs. 
even though it was not yet so. Again, that already not yet. No, they did not come to their new promised land just to live in it as wanderers. They came to it with faith in God and in obedience to his call, knowing that although the promise would not be fulfilled in their lifetime, it would be fulfilled. Looking back to Genesis and comparing it to this Hebrew passage, can we confirm what the writer of Hebrews says? Are we certain that God promises the land to Abraham's descendants through his son Isaac? Do we know that he knew that he would, receive, he would never possess it in his lifetime? How about the claim that Abraham already saw the land as his home? Well, regarding the promise, we can see it in Genesis 12, 7, a passage we have already looked at, and then again in Genesis 13, 14 through 15. Genesis 12, 7 first. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Again, in Genesis 13, 14 through 15. The Lord said to Abram and Lot, um, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the lands you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Regarding Abraham's knowledge that the promise would not be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime, we look to Genesis 15, 18-21, when God is making a covenant with Abraham, a covenant that, by the way, was wholly dependent upon God. Genesis 15, 18-21, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, part of the sacrifice of the covenant that was being made. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigrizites, and the Jebusites, and as my mom always would add, and the Mosquito Bites. Right? Notice briefly how impossible this task appears. Did you catch the number of other nations that were residing in this promised land already? How would it ever be the possession of Abraham's descendants? But what is impossible, God? What is impossible, God? Nothing. Finally, how about the claim that Abraham already saw the land as his home? In Genesis 23, we see Abraham haggle for a plot of land to bury his wife, Sarah. Let's pick up the story in verses 17 through 20. So verses, chapter, Genesis 23. And again, I'm jumping around a lot. Abraham's got a large chunk of Bible dedicated to him. So, so the field of Ephron in uh, Machpelah, I hope I got that right, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave in it that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in and at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Abraham believed so strongly, uh, as an aside, by the way, as noticed, this is the end of a long negotiation that Abraham goes through to buy this land, right? So he, he didn't just ask for the land and take it for free, so it's not really his. He, he negotiated to buy a plot of land in the promised land to bury his wife, and later he himself would be buried there. So Abraham believed so strongly that the land was already his homeland and would be his descendants that he bought a small plot of land or to bury his wife there, and later to be buried there himself. Who would do this if they were not certain that the land that would be protected and maintained by their descendants to come? Abraham put his money where his trust was, so to speak, when he made his investment in the promise of God. 
you may be surprised, or maybe you won't, that um, I spent a spare amount of time um, thinking about this very issue. You see, Marielle and I own a parcel of land outside of San Antonio in the Rio Medina area. I also have a very old cat. Sometime in the next few years, that cat will die, and I will have to decide what to do with his remains. It's a little morbid, I know. When I was a kid growing up in Louisiana, yes, we actually had a pet burial spot in our property, a cemetery of sorts, uh, for each little bundle of heartbreak that we had to inevitably contend with. So when our dog, Aubrey, died here in San Antonio some years ago, I had actually agonized over the decision of what to do with her remains. Take them out to our property in Rio Medina or let the city take care of them? In the end, I chose the city. I'm really more of a cat person. But I see that decision coming up again, and, the cat, and that cat means a lot to me. Marielle asserts that I will be inconsolable after that day finally comes, and she is probably right. But you will notice the one option I have not even raised uh, is this, burying our pets in our, at our current house. As much as I love our home and see it as an amazing blessing, I don't see it as a place we will be for the long term. Someday we will move. And so I don't want to invest anything permanent in this place, not even the body of a dead dog. In uh, <laughs> all of this indecision over a pet, Abraham was deciding where he would bury his wife, and his choice speaks volumes about his trust in the Lord and what he believed about the promise of the land. Well, does it happen? Do they ever get the land? Spoiler alert for the books of Exodus and Joshua, etc., but yes, it happens exactly as the Lord promises, not in their lifetime, but in the lifetime of their descendants. Uh, but certainly, that cannot be all. Look again at what the writer of Hebrews says about it. Did Abraham receive a heavenly country with a city designed by God? No, or at least not yet, but he will, just as we will. The land of the promise is more than just the land of Israel. For what, what is the land truly? It is a promise of an inheritance. Look with me at the very words of Christ in John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Certainly, this is what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. When he writes in eleven six. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So is the land promised Abraham's descendants merely a hotly contested plot of the Middle East? No, of course not. But who are those descendants? Interestingly enough, that question brings us to our very next type, the promised nation. Move with me, if you will, back to Hebrews 11. What does the writer of Hebrews have to say about the promised nation? given through a promised and miraculous son. And also, did you see Christ in that sentence like I do? Let's look at it again in verses 11 through 13. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. For all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here we see again faith in an impossible promise that leads to a miraculous promise fulfilled. But do we see a type of Christ? Some of you may be, have noticed that I included verse 13 again, as I already did when discussing the promised land. 
I did this because, in context, it is referring to both promises, the land and the child. But does that make sense? Did Sarah not see that promise fulfilled when her miraculous son Isaac was born? Did she really die in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar? Was it only Isaac that was promised to her, though? No, it was a whole nation, as countless as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Let's look back at the Old Testament account and see exactly how all this happened. Turn with me once more back to Genesis. And we should just keep two bookmarks. You get Genesis 1 and then Acts. I mean, the Hebrews 1, right? We will look quickly at chapters 15, 17, and 21. And please accept my apology uh, up front. For we're going to run through po uh, portions of these chapters with rapidity. First, let's look at the extent of the promise in Genesis 15, 1 through 6. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, God. What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him. As righteousness. What happens here? In this passage, we see not just the promise, but the extent of that promise. Abram's descendants will be uncountable. Now, on chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then a little further on, Genesis 17, 15 through 19. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So, what happens here? Four important things. First, we see that God is making a promise of both a child and a nation. Second, we see that these descendants will be the Lord's. Thirdly, we see the land tied back again to this very group of offspring. A land that we have already established is, in its first fulfillment, a shadow of something far greater. Finally, we also see that both Abram and Sarai are giving more appropriate names by God, names more fitting to their promised status as the father and mother of a new nation. Abram means, by the way, exalted father, a name which pointed to Abram's glory, while Abraham means father of a multitude, which in this context certainly points to God's glory and his promise, uh, that he will make a multitude from an impossible situation. Sarai in Hebrew means argumentative, while well, Sarah means princess, 
I think we can all agree that it is a definite upgrade. In both cases, God changes their names as a sign of his covenant with them. He is tying his very promise into their very identity. Every person who addresses Abraham does so now as an acknowledgement that God will keep his promise to Abraham to make him a nation of him. Similarly, Sarah's very name now reminds us that kings, and in particular, a very certain king of kings, will come from her. So is this promise fulfilled? Well, of course it is. Look with me in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 3. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. The promised son, Isaac, is born, who will be a seed of a promised nation and will be as uncountable as the stars. As we know from the rest of Scripture, that nation is the nation of Israel. But is that it? Is that the whole promise? Were they truly uncountable? Or does that very phrase not point to something more? A greater eschatological fulfillment. Let's let the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 address this for us. And again, sorry to jump around so much. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And a little bit further, Galatians 3, 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is not male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Can we say then that with some confidence, uh, the real historical nation of Israel is a shadow of a much greater fulfillment, described by the writer of Hebrews as uncountable and by the Apostle Paul as one in Christ Jesus and heirs according to the promise. Who is this nation if not the church, the very body of Christ? Even more so, can we also say that the miraculously promised child, Isaac, who will deliver a promised nation of God worshipers, is certainly a shadow of the substance of Christ Jesus himself. I think that we can. And if now... I will now try to establish this even more clearly in our final major Abrahamic type, pointed out by the writer of Hebrews himself, the obedient sacrifice. One more time, back to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who has received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall be your offspring, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here we get to the final and most direct shadow of Christ in this story. You see, Abraham was tested by God. This testing happens in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. And I'm going to read them now. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they were both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they were both of them together. There's not so much foreshadowing that right there. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on, in, um, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do not anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have no, not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns, his place horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Most of us have probably heard this story before. And when I read this passage, I think I get it, at least from God's perspective. He is testing Abraham to find out what is most important to him. But if God is sovereign, does he not already know what is most important to Abraham? Well, then obviously God wants Abraham to know what God knows, that, that God knows that, what, that God is what's most important to him. And circles and circles. Usually my line of reasoning ends there, and I often will quote the Princess Bride at that point, as you can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Right? But I don't often consider it from Abraham's perspective. What must he be thinking? Is he expecting God to stop him? Is he rather certain that God will provide him another miraculous child? Or is he truly certain that God can do an even greater miracle and bring a slain Isaac back from the dead? Well, wonder no more. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us. Let's look at this one more time. Hebrews 11, 7 through 18. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It is the third. Abraham was confident that God, in whom he placed his trust, would keep his promises, all of whom hinged upon Isaac being alive. He was so confident that he was certain that once Isaac was dead, he would rise again. And in a sense, he did sacrifice him. As the writer of Hebrews says, he gave him over to death for the Lord's sake, so thoroughly that the writer of Hebrews says that he, figuratively speaking, did indeed see him resurrected. What a picture here. Abraham, the father in obedience to God the Father, offered up his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved, to death as a sacrifice, and then receiving him back, figuratively resurrected. This is the shadow of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, his only begotten son, whom he loves, offering himself, himself up to death, and then being truly resurrected. And there it is. Christ, the substance of the shadow of Isaac. As we have seen over and over again today, God's word points to that coming Christ through the life of Abraham. So, did it happen? Did Christ come? Of course he did. All right. And that Advent is what we are celebrating this season. But is that it? Is there not a more complete picture we can talk about? Before I answer that, and as we conclude today, and some of you are sighing at that, let me share with you one final thought on Abraham's motivation in offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. Why did Abraham do this? 
because of the promise of God that through that sacrificed child and his obedience would come an earthly nation of God worshipers for God's glory, which would inherit an earthly promised land. But if that motivation is a shadow, what is the substance? Why did God the Father offer up his only son? Why did Christ the Son choose to offer up himself? Look with me, please, at two final scriptures. First, Titus 2, 11 through 14. And this is Paul writing to, to, the, to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to, uh, to redeem us from a lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There it is, the plan all along. Christ gave himself up to redeem a people from all nations who will be his. They would be perfected, uh, a perfected nation of God worshipers with an eternal inheritance and a promised land built by God. Brothers and sisters, we are that people. And we are, and what are we, sorry, and what are we doing in this passage? Well, we are trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We are also waiting. But Christ came. What are we waiting for? Our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory and our, of the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me finally answer that, include that question. Is there a greater fulfillment of Christ's first advent? Yes. Certainly there is, his second. This is what we are waiting for. He will come back for us. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked and beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing there around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There it is, a picture of that promised and uncountable nation of God. God worshipers worshiping in that promised land. So brothers and sisters, answer me one final question. Are we, as the song says, sons and daughters of Abraham? And is that sufficient reason to all praise the Lord? Yes, of course it is, and of course we are. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Let me pray in conclusion. It's like, what do you do at this point? Oh, wait, we close in prayer. Excellent. Lord God, you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And for all of us who have been called, according to you, your very good and divine will. As we leave from here, help us to remember that we have learned from the life of Abraham, that you called us, prepared us, and make us a people for your glory, with a glorious inheritance in your kingdom. In this season of Advent, Father, as we look back in remembrance and gratitude to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, help us to also look forward with anticipation, excitement, and unwavering faith to his second. Let us be, like Abraham, sojourners and wanderers here, always looking forward to our true homeland. Amen.